Santa is a genuine cowhide Rawlings Pro Special This morning, one gift will sure be enough If I get a new baseball glove Good morning and welcome to episode 353 of Effectively Wild, the daily podcast from BaseballPerspectus.com. I'm Sam Miller with Ben Lindbergh, and it does occur to me we haven't spoken yet about our holiday schedule with each other it's no. not inconceivable it's not inconceivable uh, this would be our, our our last show of the year it's it's I not inconceivable i can't conceive of such a thing <laughs> i suspected that you you might spring this on me <laughs> i well, wasn't springing i'm <laughs> i'm just discussing uh-huh. i'm putting it out in the open i well, believe that the uh the people's business should be conducted in in uh in sunlight well, Baseball Prospectus is taking off the first three days of each of the next two weeks. So the site will be off Monday to Wednesday, uh, 23rd to the 25th. So we will definitely be taking those days off. Uh, and then presumably we will be taking off the 30th and the 31st. So what we are really talking about here is the 26th and the 27th. And I would submit that we should record podcasts. All right, so it's the uh, it's the, the, the not what it's not the, quite the penultimate pre penultimate episode. It's penultimate eve, <laughs> right? And it's right. a listener email show. Uh, it is the last of, of the week, though. Yes, and the last for for a stretch. It's the mm-hmm. last for a stretch. All right, so uh, it's the listener email show, uh, and, and we've picked some emails, and you've got them in front of you. Mm-hmm. But did you see what R.J. Anderson tweeted at me earlier? T- an hour ago i didn't he tweeted a a passage at me from summer of 49 the david halberstam book uh and it's about how yogi bear was a bad framer yogi bear was what he's a bad framer (laughs) apparently (laughs) i will just i will read this very very short passage uh this is from the summer of 49, obviously, which was, I guess, Barra's second full season as a catcher. But there was so much to learn, and he was learning in the middle of a pennant race. In addition, the pitchers were uneasy with him. There were so many things he did wrong. For one thing, he did not know how to catch the ball. (laughs) He tended to stab at the last minute, carrying the ball, in the eyes of Allie Reynolds at least, out of the strike zone. He was supposed to do the reverse, scoop the ball into the strike zone. Don't stab, Yogi, Reynolds would say. Reach out and bring it in. It was as bad with low curves. Barra seemed to grind them into the dirt. The pitchers were sure they were losing calls because of Barra, and they were not happy. Bad That's framer. Awesome. Yogi Barra, awesome. bad framer. I wonder if he when was that, proved. When was that book written? When was the book written? Uh, uh, I, will, I will look. I, I read that book long ago. That was maybe one of the first baseball books I read. Uh, and at the time, I was not focusing on framing, so that didn't stick out to me. Um, I will, I will try to find when that book came out. Um, Good stuff. Yes, interesting. Uh, okay, this question kind of relates to something we brought up briefly the other day uh, about barnstorming and and how players don't do it anymore. Uh, so this comes from Jason. If a random billionaire 
Ted Turner, Vince McMahon, Richard Bronson, Zuckerberg, a bored shake at all, decided to sponsor an off-season barnstorming schedule, let's say Team USA versus Team World, how much would he have to pay to field two 20-man arbitrary count rosters of all-star caliber players? For a frame of reference, according to this article, which he links, Babe Ruth in 1922 made $52,000 from the Yankees during the regular season and could have earned about 25000 from barnstorming. So that's about half of his, his full-season salary. Obviously, I doubt MLB would ever allow this, but it is fun to imagine a Felix versus Kershaw matchup in November. Uh, does he say how many games they're going to play? Uh, he does not say that, no. Um, that is, that's obviously pretty important, but, uh, well, cause they do go to, I mean, they have those MLB all-star teams that, that go to Japan and play games in Japan, which is essentially yes. barnstorming in Japan without the barns. I don't actually, I've been to Japan and I didn't see any barns. Um, yes. but they, they do play baseball games that don't count. I mean, it's not, it's not as though there is some rule that you, that, you know, that MLB has, outlawed any baseball that doesn't count they play a lot of baseball that doesn't count mm-hmm. right well the the problem would probably be that teams would start putting clauses in contracts saying that you couldn't do this just like they have clauses that say that you can't ride your motorcycle or you can't play pickup basketball or whatever it is um teams would teams would probably not want their players doing this and i imagine there, there'd be a pretty unified front i would think about that uh, where you you would have a hard time signing a contract that would allow you to do this, at least after maybe a, an initial person got away f- from it. You could do it once. You could do it this offseason if you wanted to um, for players who don't have that sort of thing prohibited. Uh, after that, I assume it would be difficult to do. But as for the, the salary, I, I would guess that players would need to earn uh, more th- Prorated than they do during the regular season. Um, whatever, oh, whatever, yeah. whatever they make per game during the regular season. Say you'd have to, gosh, I don't know, triple that, maybe to get. I mean, it depends. If you're, we're talking about. Uh, he's talking about all-star caliber players. So we're presumably we're talking about veterans guy, veteran guys who are making a lot of money. Um, there might be young guys who are making the minimum who would be interested in, in doing this for less. But if you're talking about baseball's biggest stars, in order to have them risk injury and, and you know, train for it and disturb their winter and travel somewhere, um, I would guess that you'd have to at least triple whatever they make during the regular season. I mean, again, though, they're... Like, half the league is playing baseball right now. I mean, not right now, but, I mean, like, hundreds of players played in winter leagues and fall leagues this yes. year. Yes, yes. I'm not saying that teams would love it, and I'm not saying that teams wouldn't uh, require, uh, you know, their pound of flesh mm-hmm. from this. I mean, but like it in certain cases. They send their players to the Arizona Fall League to get yeah. some extra work in or, or whatever the case is. But. I, I just, I don't, I don't know. I mean, there's nothing in... For instance, I, I would I would bet you know dollars to donuts that there's nothing in Miguel Cabrera's contract that keeps him from playing winter ball in Venezuela. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So why couldn't he play winter ball uh, in you know Wrigley Field or whatever? Uh, he he probably could, but he probably wouldn't want to. 
it's it's cold <laughs> in Wrigley uh-huh. Field. It's not where he lives during the winter. Um, I don't. I guess I'm just saying I don't think that this is quite the deal breaker that you think it is. And also another question: Do players who have um, who are pre-arb and are just getting paid the minimum can a team insist on contract clauses or? Is the minimum the minimum? Can they put? Do you know? I mean, you don't know. You don't. don't know. Why, why would you know? But I wonder if the team can. I wonder if a team can put a clause in a um, pre-arb player who simply has had his contract renewed um, to not play basketball, or if if everybody who's you know three years of service time or less is out there just playing basketball and riding motorcycles because mm-hmm. the last time they'll ever get to do it, they're just uh, all motorcycles like just one last ride. But, <laughs> Nothing but motorcycles <laughs> right. and paintball. Yeah, oh, I don't know what else. Is, you know, jumping. I don't know what else is outlawed. I don't know <laughs> what else is outlawed. But there was a uh, you know studio. Uh, Pinnacle did a uh, a series in 1992 on ballplayer hobbies, mm. and one of the ballplayers' hobbies was uh, was Robin Yount, who who liked to do like uh, dirt bikes or something. And there was a picture of him like. 25 feet in the air on a dirt bike (laughs) (laughs) and i've always wanted to go get that set of hobbies cards and see how many of them are are unthinkable now (laughs) yeah and yeah it would make a a good good article if we could if we could get some source to to tell us those contract details i'd like to know what's prohibited there are probably some really strange strange things that are prohibited all right to the point though uh, to the question at, at hand, mm-hmm. which is really more about the financial incentives it would require to get a $25 million, a person who's making $25 million to give up his off season um, and do the thing that he probably hates more than anything <laughs> in the world, which is play baseball in front of other people. Uh, <laughs> uh, what would it take? And it's not quite, the, the thing is that, like, so Babe Ruth got half his salary but he, you know, he needed that money. Like every every million dollars you make, probably increases the number of million dollars you would need by two. Uh-huh. You know, yeah. so like it might actually be that it would require fifty million dollars. Like Tiger Woods goes and plays like you know some tournament in you know in China or something in his off season, and he's getting paid just like absurd sponsorship fee or uh, appearance fees. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I, it really, I think it has to be, um, like, I would guess that it would have to be, um, I don't know, I would guess that it would probably have to be something on the order of uh, 10 times what you get paid per game. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and maybe even more than that if we're, like, what we were talking about the other day is sort of fun things, like, you know, having Babe Ruth face an 18-year-old woman or, you know, just having players barnstorm against amateur players or people in different leagues, the, the more interesting things. Because if, if it's just Felix versus Kershaw, that's, we're just extending the regular season at this point. Um, so we would be more interested in seeing players do strange things, and it would, it would probably take a lot more money to get them to do that. That's true. Uh, like, oh. uh, yeah, well, like Tiger Woods recently did a thing where he hit a he hit a golf ball from like asia to europe like he was in turkey or something <laughs> and just for that one swing it was like he got paid like 600 million dollars <laughs> that, literally that's the exact figure yeah. literally 600 million dollars uh-huh. uh bobby asks 
can the Mariners negotiate a sign-and-trade deal? He actually said sing-and-trade deal, which is I like that idea much better. Uh, <laughs> Seattle front office, <laughs> the, the musical. Um, yeah. <laughs> can, can, can the Mariners negotiate <laughs> a sign-and-trade deal with Kendris Morales if what they get in return is less valuable to the other team than the other team's first-round pick? Sorry if that's not worded well. Yeah, you should should be sorry, Bobby. Um, So what he's asking, and we we talked about this when the qualifying offers were first uh, announced, where we talked about who got them and then who, well, I guess everyone declined them. But um, we talked about the fact that Kendris Morales was the most likely to get the the Michael Bourne, Kyle Loesch treatment from last offseason, where the, the draft pick really impacts how much teams are willing to pay them uh, and they end up not signing with anyone or dragging on throughout the offseason. And people have been talking about this a lot lately and, oh, will he wait until after the amateur draft in June or, you know, middle of the summer to sign uh, so that at that point he won't cost a draft pick, but he'll have to sit out part of the season. Uh, So the other idea is that the Mariners sign him, don't have to pay the draft pick, and then they trade him to another team, uh, and they they get something in return that that they are happy with. Um, and theoretically, that that should make Morales happy, and it would make the Mariners happy if they get a trade that that they're satisfied with. Uh, so we we did some some serious googling before we started recording, and from what we can tell, uh, it's. It's theoretically possible. There's no, there's no rule that prohibits this from happening, but it has to be approved by Major League Baseball and probably also by the Players Association. Uh, and it seems like this is probably unlikely in this case. John John Morosi wrote a column at Fox Sports just about a day ago, and he briefly mentioned this idea uh, and. He said uh, MLB did not allow that with Bourne and Loesch last year, and one source told him that multiple teams tried and failed to get permission to do that, and that it seems unlikely that MLB would change course in the second offseason of a collective bargaining agreement. Uh, and then there's also some idea that Scott Boris doesn't have a lot of friends in the commissioner's office and that they won't bend over backwards to, to do him a favor for his client. Um, so it seems like it's it's unlikely, uh, but not completely impossible. This is uh, this is my this is basically my stock answer to to every question that is like, uh, would it be possible to subtly subvert the rules in this way to um, you know to gain an advantage? The answer is always yes, and there's you know probably nothing stopping you to do it except that Major League Baseball is essentially a benevolent dictatorship. And once you start doing things that work, they'll just stop it. They'll like they just they'll go back and do whatever they they'll change the record books. They don't care. They'll do anything they want if they if they don't like the way that you're, uh, you know, they basically Hunger Games is like uh, is an is is a metaphor for all Major League Baseball. And when you start thinking that you're going to outsmart them, uh, they just uh, send out a pack of uh, bees or whatever, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, Isn't that what Hunger Games happened? Isn't that how Hunger Games <laughs> went? A pack of bees? Essentially, yeah. I think that that, that happened at one point. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And I found an article, I came across an article from 2009 where this was being talked about with Juan Cruz, the reliever, because this was back in the, the Elias draft pick compensation system where Juan Cruz was a type A free agent. And since he was a reliever, no one was really that interested in him. And uh, there were quotes from from Josh Burns, who was the Diamondbacks GM at the time, saying that that they'd talk to the union and they'd talk to the commissioner's office to see if there was a way where he could just sign with with them and then they would trade him. And it, it seemed like uh, that was that was being considered as a possibility. It was feasible at the time, although it, it did not end up happening. Uh, he signed with the Royals, who I guess were happy to give up that draft pick. Um, okay, uh, this question comes from James. And I feel like we might have talked about this before. I don't know whether we did, but I have something new to say about it if we did, because uh, this is this is one that I dug up from our, our archives. Um, this is from James in Sarasota, and he asked, uh, today's baseball on ice question is, what if baseball allowed two-way substitutions, allowing a player who had left the game to return? Did we talk about that? Yeah, we did. Yeah, so... Uh, I want to talk about it again because I am I'm reading a book right now uh, called Pages from Baseball's Past. It's by Craig Wright, who of course was one of the the pioneering sabermetricians, one of the the first people to work in analytics in in front offices. He worked with the Rangers and was in baseball full time for for over two decades. And uh, now he he writes a a sort of newsletter. Uh, about baseball's past it's called a page from baseball's past you can find it at baseballspast.com and they just put out a book collecting some of those newsletters and uh it's just sort of an anthology series about interesting anecdotes or interesting research that he's uncovered from baseball history and it's very interesting i i would recommend it uh because it's kind of a, a mix of history and analysis and one of the, the most interesting chapters, I think, is about courtesy runners. Uh, and not just courtesy runners, but also courtesy fielders and courtesy batters. I was I don't think I was aware of this practice. Uh, and I don't know whether you were, but it used to be the case that this could happen. That uh, a player could could sub in for someone who was temporarily incapacitated for some reason. And then after an inning or so, that player would be ready to come back into the game, and he just would. Uh, and and the player who had come in for him before was was not used. The player could come back into the game after having been removed and and having a substitute. And I was not aware of this. Uh, the last time it happened legally was July second, nineteen forty nine. Uh, when Ray Boone, who was on the Indians, was hit by a pitch in the ninth inning and could not could not run. He was in too much pain to run. So the catcher, Jim Hegan, was allowed to pinch run for Boone, even though Hegan was already in the game. <laughs> he was already catching. Uh, and Boone was not technically out of the game. The game actually, it, it, it happened to end that inning. But had it not ended that inning, Boone could have been eligible to return and play defense and hit in his normal slot. And uh, this rule was, or there was no rule prohibiting this until after that 1949 play. That winter, there was a rule added to the rule book 
Rule 3.04 that said a player whose name is on his team's batting order may not become a substitute runner for another member of his team. Uh, It actually happened one more time after that, uh, a few years later, illegally. I guess the the umpire was just not aware of the rule. It happened in 1952, but that is the last time that that it's happened. Um, There is still the rule that we've talked about that allows for a pinch runner in the middle of a play. And we talked about the fact that that Gabe Kapler did that in 2005. He was the last to do it. But I was not really aware that this was a practice. Uh, And Craig Wright says that there were nearly 60 known instances of courtesy substitutes in the first 74 years of Major League Baseball. And there would have been more except uh, that there was the condition that the opposing manager had to approve. He had to give his permission to allow the other team to use the courtesy player, which is how in the the 1949 example I gave, it was the catcher, Jim Hegan, who was like the slowest runner on the team, who was allowed to be a courtesy runner because the manager, opposing manager said, yes, you can do it if you if you put the slowest runner on the team in. Uh, so I was I was not aware that this happened. And uh, there were courtesy fielders. There were like five instances of, of the same thing being done with fielders. And even courtesy batter, uh, that happened too. Um, in 1915, uh, Chick Gandel on the Washington Senators popped his knee while swinging at a pitch. The opposing manager of the White Sox, Pants Rowland, <laughs> agreed to let Rip Williams finish his at-bat. And then when Gandel got his knee straightened out, he returned to first base and played the remaining seven innings in the game. Uh, so this was... One of my favorite chapters from pages from baseball past. Yeah, uh, what's shocking is how recent that is. It's one of those things where, like, you if it were like 1880, you'd go, "Oh, interesting." But mm-hmm. it's like when you find out that, like, you know, in Texas, women couldn't have dogs until 1980 <laughs> or something like that. And you're like 1980. Like right. my parents were alive in 1980. You know? <laughs> yes, it's mm-hmm. that's weird. Like I know people who were alive in 1949. Yeah. That's, they grew up in such a different environment. Uh, so I was thinking about the my mom, question. My, my mother was born the day after the last courtesy runner. Um, you're setting yourself up for identity so, theft. Sorry for giving away your age <laughs> on the podcast, Mom. Um, so uh, I was thinking while you were talking about the original question, which, as you noted, we've answered. But I also have now thought of something else I would like to say about it, if that's okay. It is okay. It's interesting because um, when you think about it, the rule that you can't leave and then come back is essentially a way of ensuring that worse players are on the field than would otherwise be on the field. Like, mm-hmm. if, if you could, then you'd have you'd be able to use your, your best players more often. Once they left the game, you would not have burned them. They could come back in. You could do a lot. You know, you could do more platoons. You could have pitchers be fresher longer. And you could do all these sorts of things to raise the level of play. And yet, um, we don't do that because um, somewhere along the line, it was determined that... Um, restrictions are part of what make the game good mm-hmm. and even restrictions that lower the overall level of play make the game good and um i think that this is sort of an a, a, an, an analogy for peds where you will hear the the point made um somewhat regularly i i feel like that um well you know their peds make players better 
it's uh, they're trying to they're trying to they're trying to be better. So um, you know wh- why put restrictions on them? And um, you know it in that's true. But we've decided as a sort of sports culture that we don't actually want the ultimate performance. The point of the game we've decided is not actually to reach the highest levels of athletic achievement. Mm-hmm. That is that is not our goal in this. So you can't think about that as the end of baseball. Nobody uh, in you know in 150 years it has evolved that that is not the end that we are going for. The end is to have a compelling style of play with um, restrictions that create games within the game. Um, and so yeah, that's all. Yeah, that's that's a good point. Um, I want to read one one last example from this chapter. The most extreme use of courtesy players, uh, which comes. Oh, sorry, I did not. I didn't mean it. No, you didn't. Your... No, you okay. didn't. That was a worthwhile thing to say. Uh, the most extreme use of courtesy players occurred on August 28, 1877. Uh, Louisville first baseman Jumbo Latham needed Al Nichols to fill in for him for an inning at first base. Latham came back into the game and later singled. Left fielder George Hall was used as a courtesy runner for Latham. And Hall was still on base when his turn at bat came up. So center fielder Bill Crowley went out and ran for Hall. So Louisville not only used three courtesy players, but they used a courtesy runner for another courtesy runner. That is always embarrassing when that happens <laughs> yeah. in slow pitch. Yeah. <laughs> it happens once a season. It's just <laughs> awkward. That so. Almost as awkward as when you're on base in Little League and you realize that you just can't hold it anymore. You have to go pee. <laughs> Uh, yeah, early baseball was kind of crazy. Um, all right, this one comes from Mike in Toronto, and he asks about the three Andrelton Simmons infield. Uh, hey guys, I know you've answered this sort of question about the outfield, but how about the infield? Would you rather have three Andrelton Simmonses whose positioning was optimized for each batter, or a league average four-man infield, which employs a league average number of shifts? You would not be able to replace the fourth Andrelton Simmons with an extra outfielder, and you can have one left-handed Andrelton if you choose. If your answer is the four-man infield, how about three Andrelton Simmonses versus four Miguel Cabreras, or three Andrelton Simmonses versus four Prince Fielders? So basically, would you rather have three Andrelton Simmons or four average guys or four below-average guys? Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. You know, when we answered the uh, the previous version of this, we should have known this was coming and actually done some math because yeah, uh, there's probably math to be done. Uh, I so I, I can only answer off the top of my head. Go with your gut. I, I would take the league average infield. Me too. Over three Andrelton Simmons, mm-hmm. and I would take three Andrelton Simmons over four Prince Fielders. Yes, I completely agree. Uh huh. Um, <laughs> what if it, what about this? Would you rather have uh, four left-handed Andrelton Simmons or a league average infield? <sighs> um, I guess uh, probably the probably the Simmonses. I feel like they wouldn't. They would get to the ball so quickly that they could just like run around the ball and throw. All right, and how many <laughs> how many Ryan Howards would it take to, <laughs> to outweigh three Andrelton Simmonses? Um, 
<sighs> right hand, right-handed Andrelton Simmons is, is but uh-huh. of course, three left-handed, left-handed uh, Ryan Howard's. I can have one. Can I have one lefty Simmons? If you want. All right. Um, five. You would. You would. Uh, you would take. You would take five Ryan Howards over three Andrelton Simmons. I think so. I ab- I absolutely would not. No. How many no, would you? Absolutely. How many? He can't even throw, Ben. Oh, well, that's what, true. What good? You could have six on the left side of the infield. Well, that you could happen. have a, yeah, you could. <laughs> They'd you could have, have to a, relay it, like right, Cassie's buckets you'd, from a flooding boat. You'd have like a pitcher's helper, Ryan Howard, in the middle. <laughs> uh, yeah, you're right. I guess if you have a player who just can't make a throw from third base or shortstop, then it almost doesn't matter how many you have. No, I would take three Andletons over five Ryan Howards, but but six <laughs> six Ryan Howards over three Andletons. Mm-hmm. Six uh, is my number for Ryan Howards. Okay, last question from Kyle. Uh, his question is about the Rule 5 draft. We could maybe answer it, but I, I, I have something related to say. Uh, so he wants to know uh, basically... He asked a few questions, but I guess the most interesting question is whether we need a Rule 5 draft. Uh, should teams be penalized for stocking good talent in their farm system, even if there is no room on the 40-man roster? Yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah, uh, because there's like there's like literally one rule in the entire world that protects minor league baseball players, and mm-hmm. this is it. Yeah, uh, and he also asks whether the Rule 5 draft is broken uh i i don't do you think it's broken uh i don't think that um i think that there should be more of a penalty if you draft a guy and then let him go back to his team it feels like that that you basically just lose twenty five thousand dollars in the transaction Mm -hmm. feels weird to me like it it, it feels like there should be something more final about making that pick i'm also not a hundred percent sure that i think that uh trading as uh cavalierly as they do players who have been picked I, maybe that's good for the player so maybe that's the point um but it feels kind of weird i feel like there should be higher stakes for a rule five pick mm-hmm. too easy to get out of it mm-hmm. uh well the reason that i wanted to answer this question is that someone uh, who works for a team in a in a front office proposed to me earlier this week a related idea a rule five draft for front office employees uh, so say say baseball operations people only, every team can choose, you know, 12, 12 executives, 12, 12 front office people to protect. And if you've been in the same position in that front office for, say, four years or something without a promotion, you are eligible for the, the front office Rule 5 draft. And the selecting team would have to put you in a similar position or promote you for a year. Or I, or I guess lose you again. Uh, so same, same concept. Um, but there are, there are front offices that promote people very quickly. There are also front offices where you can just kind of get stuck behind a bunch of people, and maybe you're qualified for a position higher or more lucrative elsewhere. And the idea is that maybe teams, people with other teams, would would know that you're capable and would would take you out of this uh, out of this blocked situation and put you into their front office and let you let you spread your wings uh, so I I guess the maybe the, the 
biggest problem with this is, well, I, I don't know. There are a couple couple problems with this. There's the, I guess, the confidentiality aspect of it, where you would you would have a lot more movement between front offices, theoretically, and teams probably wouldn't want that. Um, and and I'm actually I'm sort of surprised that there's as much movement as there is because when when someone leaves one front office and goes to another I, I mean I guess theoretically you're still bound by an NDA but uh, there's I mean there's no way that you could give another team permission to hire or interview one of your employees and expect that person not to 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 share any of the knowledge that he's learned while working for his old team um so that's a potential problem I guess there's there's also the problem that maybe there, maybe there wouldn't be that much movement because maybe you you just wouldn't know about these people's abilities unless they were actively campaigning for a job in another front office. You you might just not know about them because they're stuck. They're not in a very prominent position. All of their work is is confidential. Um, so it's not like with a minor league player where you can scout that player and look at his stats and everyone knows how that player is performing. With a, a front office person. You might not. You might not know. Um, so is it I, hard for is it hard for front office people to move jobs right now? Uh, I I don't know how hard it is really. Um, I know some teams don't promote very quickly, and that can get frustrating for some people. Um, but I I don't know how. I mean, we've we've heard from time to time when there's like a an opening of some sort, and some team wants to talk to some other teams executive that once in a while they won't give permission but usually if it's a if it's a higher position they will it seems like um so i don't know do you do you think there's anything to the the front office rule five draft um well i don't i i i don't know it i i didn't know that you couldn't just leave like if you were and, you know, in a in a front office, and you were not under contract, uh, being you know, once your contract is up, or you know, if you're not under yeah. some well, long right. contract, couldn't you just go? Can, uh, there's nothing stopping people from moving about as much as they want to, right? Right. Yeah. This is, I guess, if you if you are under contract. Uh huh. Um, yeah. I don't know. I don't know. I I don't know how these things work. I've never <laughs> I've never worked at a at like a real company that. <laughs> like was super hardcore about anything like this so uh like every company i've ever worked at people just like call in sick and then fly across the country for a job interview and then they if they get it they leave so uh -huh. <laughs> hard to say yeah yeah i think it's it's probably a little harder in in a, a top secret industry like baseball operations but um yeah i don't know anyway person wanted me to to suggest this idea to the masses so now i have uh, cool. All right. So that's the end of the show. Uh, as we mentioned, we think we will probably be back with a couple shows at the end of last week or next week. Um, but uh, we hope that you have a very Merry Christmas or Merry trip to the Chinese restaurant or however you, you celebrate or don't celebrate December 25th. Uh, and we also hope, as mentioned yesterday, Everything at Baseball Prospectus, published at Baseball Prospectus, Thursday and Friday, yesterday and today, 
is free for non-subscribers, so you can go read it. There's some good stuff there that you can check out and see if you are interested in subscribing to the site. Uh, at the top of the site, there's a big banner that links you to gift subscriptions, which uh, we we suggest if you are stumped for gift ideas for sports fans. I have been there, and I have given Baseball Prospectus gift subscriptions because I'm not creative. Um, and uh, it's, a, it's a nice way for you to support the podcast if you are a regular listener. Uh, another way that you can support the podcast is by rating and reviewing us on iTunes and subscribing to the show on iTunes. And we hope that you will join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash effectively wild. Uh, so have a nice break and we will talk to you again next week. I forgot to say, <laughs> I forgot to say when summer of 49 was published. Oh really? What year was summer of 49 published Ben? 1989. Okay. Okay. Bye. I forgot to say when summer of 49 <laughs> <laughs> was it was it 1989 it was <laughs> okay bye